Uh, hello, uh, good afternoon, I think for most people. Uh, welcome to uh, uh, another dialogue that we've been uh, kind of doing for the last several months uh, as we've watched this uh, pandemic uh, unfold. I think those of us that have uh, been part of this before, the people uh, in the, in the uh, audience that have been watching this know that the format of this is pretty loose. Uh, uh, we talk about issues that are hot at the moment, knowing that they're going to be cool tomorrow and they're going to be new ones uh, that, that pop up. That's been, uh, been a, a trend, I think. Uh, we have several people with us today, and I'll uh, start by uh, uh, introducing them. But even before then, um, what you'll see on your screen is, a, is an audience survey. Uh, the group of us met the other day to talk about this program and thought it might be useful to get some, uh, some feedback from the audience even before we start. It's not a CME program. You won't be pre and post tested to see if you've, uh, if you've absorbed this, but, but we do think it would help us um, as we, uh, as we uh, uh, have our discussion. So uh, what you see is a, a series of questions uh, and you can uh, answer them uh, and do remember to scroll down. If you notice that the bar on the right-hand side of, uh, of the survey um, uh, is a scroll bar. And so uh, go ahead and finish um, that. And while you do that, um, and, and this should not be hard for you, it's kind of, do you plan to get the fourth dose, et cetera? Uh, let me just mention the people that are joining us today uh, to uh, engage in this discussion. Uh, two of them are, uh, old friends to this format, uh, Peter Chin Hong from, uh, from UCSF, um, where I have been associated, uh, Bonnie Maldonado uh, from Stanford University, uh, just down the, down the uh, interstate, uh, and Mike Seg uh, joining us from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Uh, those that have been part of this before know that uh, Carlos Del Rio, another very familiar person, uh, has been part of this. Carlos was kind of caught in a, in a travel uh, issue today. And so Mike uh, uh, very graciously uh, agreed to uh, step in in his place. Um, so welcome uh, to the three uh, panelists and, and you'll get a chance to meet them in, in person in just a second. So uh, we have the results uh, uh, that, you, that you have up here. I'm gonna just kind of mention them in passing, but then I want us to be able to spend, spend some more time uh, actually talking about them. Do you plan to receive a fourth dose? Um, if so, uh, when do you want to uh, imagine uh, getting it? Uh, what about pediatric populations? Uh, and uh, what is kind of some of your risk uh, yourselves, uh, your, your age group and, and others? And we can, we can go into other questions as we, as we go along. So uh, welcome to the, uh, to the panel. Uh, and um, Mike, especially thanks for, uh, for stepping in. Um, Mike is, uh, has the distinction of being not only a, a great friend and colleague, but also one of the first people, actually the first person I knew that got, uh, got COVID-19 back in the earliest days of the epidemic, the pandemic, um, survived. I don't think has long COVID, at least his brain fog has cleared a little bit. Um, so, uh, so welcome, Mike, and, and thanks. Uh, uh, Bonnie is a, a professor at Stanford, is a pediatric ID person, 
uh, has been very involved in uh, in a number of the pediatric uh, uh, protocols. Uh, I do want us to dig into that today, Bonnie, because uh, I think we all know it's been quite um, quite a mess um, in terms of the data and kind of the decision making process. And then uh, Peter Chin Hong is a is an adult ID uh, person from uh, from UCSF. Um, his specialty is, has really been transplant uh, infectious disease and uh, so lots of immunology and, and a great person to talk to us, not only about vaccines and some of those issues, but also uh, has been uh, involved in the direct treatment of, of COVID-19 patients and has a real expertise in, in the treatment of the, of the virus. And I think uh, one of the other directions that I, I want us to be able to Talk about today is um, where we where we stand with treatment. What do we see going forward as as this uh, as this whole thing continues to play out? So, lots of me talking, lots of background. Um, somebody talked to me about the BA two variant. Uh, where did this come from, and uh, and why? Anyone want to jump in on that? I, you know, I think Mike and I can, or we can all talk, but let me just say that right. um, I do phylogenetic sequencing for a living before COVID. I was, uh, I'm, I've been a, done a lot of work in eradication of polio. So a lot of my work was in environmental surveillance and transmission of polio viruses. So we already had NIH funding to look at phylogenetic sequencing transmission patterns of polio and um, have been trying to look at um, COVID as well here in our BSL-3 facility. Um, but um, so, you know, all of us have been tracking on next strain and GSA uh, uh, websites, the different strains. Uh, and I think all of you, I hope, have seen that picture of Om the Omicron genetic sequence, which is why I think people are so concerned. And it also may give us some hints as to where it came from and where we might be headed. So um, as you can see on the genetic uh, sequencing, these are all essentially descendants of the uh, parent, the ancestral strain, all essentially all of them. So some variability over time as we would expect, but Omicron just popped up last November, uh, a seemingly from, uh, from uh, a remnant of something from 2020. So that's what's really concerning. And it does appear, we don't know this for sure. You know, we don't have the book and the band played on with patient zero, but not there yet. May have, not yet. yeah, that's right. We may have a patient zero somewhere. Um, I'm not that we want to blame anybody. It was no one's fault, but this virus uh, probably arose within an individual or a series of closely related individuals um, because those mutations that we see that are unique to Omicron just uh, don't have any the, the most recent common ancestor is, you know, about two years ago. So, um, so this is the concern that many of us have had for a while, given Peter, you may have some comments about the immunocompromised population and whether that can, you know, give rise to these strains. We don't usually look at, for example, RSV or flu or other strains that are chronically shed in these patients. And perhaps this is what happened. Because there was some speculation early on that, that that may have been part of the source of this of this variant, right? Yeah, well, I think it, it makes the most sense virologically if you look at the strains. I mean, we, we don't know yet. And so the question is, will that happen again or could that happen again? And it's, it's, it's possible. And, you know, again, we're kind of at the cutting edge of modeling uh, R-naughts and transmission dynamics at this point. So we have to, get, have to see what the modeling experts tell us about 
how these viruses can play out. Great. Um, so, but so a, a new variant appears. So we had Delta, we had Omicron, we had now we have this BA uh, two variant. Um, it seems to you know to a to a lay person like me as though you know we've we've seen the virus over its last three steps uh, become, if anything, more transmissible, but less virulent or less aggressive clinically. Is 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 that is that true? Is that a trend? Uh, would we expect uh, from what we know about uh, the biology that that's going to continue so that BA3 will be um, even less of a, of a concern clinically? Maybe Peter, do you want to, let me toss that to you. And... Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a question we get asked all the time. And if you ask a virologist, they say that it's, there's no guarantee that the next variant is going to be continue to be more transmissible and less serious, and you can get a mismatch of both. But I think it's also ignoring the soil on which the virus lands. And uh, if the population is getting successive waves of infection and you have vaccination and boosting, you're getting more and more immune as a community. And I think what to me was very compelling was to look at the case of Hong Kong, which hadn't seen the virus a lot for population because of strict border control. And one can say this is the future of China as well. Um, and they, were, they are hit so hard. It's like it's March 2020 all over again. And that's really speaking to the fact that we not only think about the virus and virus properties, but we also think about the population. And when you look at the 1918 flu pandemic, there's various uh, theories. Is the, was the population getting more and more immune? Of course, somebody had vaccines then. Or was the virus getting less and less uh, virulent? And the answer is probably a little bit of both or mainly driven by population immunity. And I don't know if Mike or Bonnie, you have anything to add to that. Uh, so just uh, as you do that, and Mike, I'll, I'll toss it to you. Uh, kind of let's ask whether maybe Denmark was right and just kind of let this thing uh, let this thing go. Or was it Sweden? I can't remember back to the early Dan days. Oh, no, yeah. that was Sweden and Denmark both did it, but in different yeah. ways. But go yeah, ahead, Mike. Okay. Mike, go ahead. To me, the take-home point of this BA2 is that it is much more virulent even than the original, or transmissible than even the, the BA1 or the original Omicron. And then it gets why it's taking over so quick. To me, the key question that we're going to need to watch in the next three weeks is what, compared to Europe, where it really has taken off, the enormous spike we had in Omicron was, was worse here. And did that give us enough local immunity to at least truncate or attenuate the spike that we're likely to see with BA2, that remains to be seen. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's in my view, again, who knows, but I think that we either got infected with Omicron or we had vaccine induced immunity. So right now we're in a sweet spot. I don't know how long that will last, but um, that's, that's exactly where I think people are feeling cautious. We are doing environmental surveillance uh, around the Bay Area, around the country. We have our own uh, surveillance system here at Stanford that goes up and down the, the uh, Northern California region. And it's pretty low. We're just, we saw a little, little blips after spring break for the students, but not much out there. And just to come back to what Peter said about Hong Kong, um, remember they basically flattened the curve, but they never developed population immunity because nobody got vaccinated or not nobody, but very few people got vaccinated. So again, I like vaccines. That's what I do for a living. We need to get vaccinated. That's my bottom line. And so, uh, yeah. 
So thanks for opening the door to my, my next area. So uh, one of the obvious uh, questions, and, and it was reflected in the, in the questions that we asked the, the audience to begin with. Um, so here we are, uh, we are watching maybe the beginnings of a surge uh, of BA2, um, slower here perhaps than we saw in Europe, uh, but we saw what happened with Omicron where it just exploded. Um, we have vaccines in our, uh, in our toolkit now. Um, is now the time to, uh, for everyone to run out and get vaccinated? Uh, we just got an email from our uh, leaders at UCSF today saying that you know, they've opened the gates to, to, to the next round of boosters. Um, is now the time to do it? Um, do we wait? Um, how long after you've been boosted the last time do you get boosted this time? Should we wait until we see if this explodes? Um, uh, let me go back to Peter and ask him what, what's, your, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll first start with the science of the booster in terms of what studies we have so far, which is not many. And then we'll put in the US context and context around the world. So the, the, the only good data or only data for the fourth chart comes from Israel, and they are two slightly contradictory studies. One is a smaller study in healthcare workers, about 274. Average age was about 60, um, and a range that was large. Um, so they got a fourth shot, and the people got three shots, didn't really seem to be, look very different in terms of uh, the people who got four shots in terms of breakthrough infections or, and nobody was hospitalized in either group. So it suggests that, wow, three shots really did the job for that group in the surge in Israel for Omicron. Now you look at the bigger study, which was uh, released last Thursday, and that's the one that raised eyebrows and that looked like at about over 500,000 uh, Israelis between the ages of 60 and 100, average age 74. So it's a little bit older. And uh, they looked at people who got four shots and three shots and who died of or with COVID, we're not really sure, but it looks like 0.03% of people who got um, three, uh, four shots died and 0.1% of people who got uh, three shots died. So again, the take home point is, wow, three shots is amazing. And, but if you scale up the sort of difference between the absolute deaths in a smaller country, which is Israel, to a bigger country like the United States, you're talking about potentially thousands of lives. So in the middle of a surge. So that's why it's kind of a nuance and a could recommendation rather than a should recommendation. But going through everything, like my mom is uh, in her late 80s, I would want her to get that shot right now. But you know, would I go and get the shot uh, right now? I, I may or may not, but it depends on what my goalpost is. If my goal post is prevention of serious disease, hospitalization, and death, you know, I think a young uh, 50, a uh, uh, healthy 50 year old wouldn't have to rush out and get it. But if you want to, if you're a healthcare worker and you don't want to get a breakthrough infection, you wait for the surge and then you reconstitute your antibodies so that you don't even get a breakthrough, even though I know three shots is going to keep me away from the hospital. Uh, it's it's interesting because I'm I'm uh, listening to you and looking at the results from our survey uh, that that we conducted early on, and our audience skews to kind of over fifty, uh, not exclusively, but quite a number of us are in the audience, and the audience skews to um, yes, they plan to uh, 
uh, to get a fourth dose, but they're about evenly divided by uh, by when they plan uh, or when they think they are planning to to do that. So I don't know, uh, Bonnie, do you want to comment on on that? I don't know if you can see these results as well. Yeah, I saw the results, and that's uh, exactly how I feel. Uh, who yes, knows? who yeah. knows? Yeah. So I think what Peter did is a really great outline of what we know, and I'm frankly waiting with bated breath to hear the. FDA VERPAC discussion next week, because I'm hoping there will be some data that we haven't seen already. I don't know that there will be, but I think the question really has to do with not whether we should get a fourth dose, but when. Uh, I'm a little nervous myself because I'm thinking, how, can I, how long can I wait safely until I get that fourth dose so that I can keep that little boost? Um, the other thing, as we've talked about before on these discussions, is we just had a paper uh, uh, published looking at T cell responses using an IGRA uh, like assay here at Stanford. And we followed patients that we enrolled in clinical trials who had COVID back in 2020, and we followed them through almost a year. And they still, their T cell IGRA responses were good for COVID disease uh, infected, infection through 10 months, but after 10 months dropped off. So, um, so I do have faith in our immune system, but I don't know how faithful uh, it will be to us in terms of preventing the the worst cases. So again, back to what Peter said, if if there were really, you know, old, really, you know, like over 70, 80, 90 years of age, I think those people should get vaccinated. In pediatrics, for example, we've had kids, families of kids who have really serious underlying conditions and are those children, especially, well, the ones who are authorized. So those kids 12 and older, for sure, um, they should definitely get boosted. Um, when they, when those are available. Um, and then for the others, I think it's really a risk calculus and that's let unfortunate. Me, let me ask about pregnant women, Bonnie, because um, uh, that's the other half of uh, pediatrics. Um, and we, we've sensed, I think lately that maybe pregnant women are at quite a bit of excess risk for, for COVID-19. Um, should they be high on the list for, uh, for the fourth uh, dose, even if they're younger? Um, and uh, what about the effect of uh, vaccination in pregnancy on the health of the newborn? Yeah, so that's a great question. And actually, um, um, uh, that, that's uh, the, um, I think ACOG and others have really weighed in. In fact, UCSF was one of the first places to publish data on pregnancy. And it's very clear that pregnant women are in a high-risk group. Um, but that said, we have, uh, in during Omicron in particular, we had... Uh, many pregnant women coming in for labor and delivery who were asymptomatic. So I think this also speaks to the idea of trying to figure out how to build a uh, some kind of a biomarker so we can see who's at risk. But it is clear that the risk of preterm deliveries in particular um, and complications is much higher. And we know that the risk of death is higher for pregnant women. Um, but that was pre-Omicron. I don't know whether that's going to be true now, given that so many people have some kind of immunity. But I think one thing to say though, as a very foundational piece of this is that the vaccine is safe. So I don't think that's an issue for vaccinating pregnant women. And, I, and the other last thing around babies is there was a large meta-analysis that was done recently looking at uh, a, a many uh, studies, uh, over a thousand children uh, born to COVID infected women and the infection rate was in the, uh, in the, you know, couple dozens. So very few and very few symptomatic kids. So 
I don't know whether this will translate out into some kind of weird immune tolerance down the line, but certainly the children don't look like they're affected. And NICHD has put in quite a substantial amount of resources to following children over time and pregnant women. Great. Um, Mike, I'm, I started out by saying, uh, commenting on your own infection. And I know there's been quite a bit of discussion, I think maybe even more in the last few weeks about uh, the results of, of prior infection, the effects of that on, on immunity. I've heard some of our colleagues, maybe one of them uh, recently, uh, speculating about maybe going out and getting infected because, uh, uh, because, the, because it, uh, it might be protective. What do you, what, what's your take on that? And does your prior infection give you a boost up on the rest of us? I think it so does to, speak. <laughs> to a degree, yeah. Um, but, I, but I think there's a huge gap in knowledge because a lot of the work that Peter quoted, uh, I'm not sure about the T-cell work that Bonnie just said, but most of it's looking at the pure vaccinated group, occasionally at patients who had infection for sure, but that infection followed by vaccination is, is kind of a void in data. That said, um, and I'll speak terribly anecdotally here, but the, the point is that when I had it, I, I volunteered for research from day one, and this goes back to March of 2020, and followed out, and I had a robust immune response on every level, such that when I got my vaccine in December of 20, I had this huge uh, amnestic sort of response. It was enormous. So I put off my second shot until August, of 21, and I'm dealing with the decision of, do I get the first real booster or not? But I, I'm confident that my immunity is robust up until maybe this point, I'll probably get the booster now, but we don't really know is a take-home point. Instinctively, having an infection being followed by a vaccine series is probably the best immunity you can have. That said, nobody, nobody should ever get this disease solely for the purpose of immunity because you just don't know what it's going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Based on what I went through, I wouldn't want to ever go through this again. And I think it's, it's obvious that we don't <clears throat> yet know everything about long COVID as well, so, uh, or, or the risk of transmission. So, um, Peter, what's your, uh, what's your take on, on this discussion? Yeah, so I agree with Mike uh, completely, and I think that uh, even though you wouldn't want to go out ahead and get it intentionally for multiple reasons, and I'm lucky so far I haven't, um, the people who do get it do have this hybrid immunity that uh, people are talking about. That's the holy grail. When you look at all the objective measures, uh, it, it seems to perform the best. But um, And whether or not getting it naturally as well, or you know, in the community, plus vaccines count counts as a shot itself, probably true. I think most people are, uh, are considering it like a shot. The problem with, and this is true until Omicron, the problem with Omicron is for those who are asymptomatic or have mild infection, the question is what's your, not whether or not you would get a response, which probably you might, but what's the level of antibodies you get? Um, and again, that comes to a question of not uh, solely relying on, on infection acquired naturally to give you the take you across the finish line. And there's good data from the early months showing that the, the more severe you've had uh, disease, the more 
the higher the level of antibodies, like people in the ICU, et cetera, versus people in the community. So putting all of those things together, you know, again, you, with BA1, BA2, more transmissible, but if asymptomatic, we don't really know what's the number of, of antibodies and immune response you're getting, the magnitude, um, but certainly I would count it as a shot. So that, um, let me just remind the audience that there's a Q&A function on, on Zoom, um, and uh, we'll try to keep uh, track of the, of the questions that the audience is generating. The, the, we want this to be useful for you, and uh, that's one way uh, to do it. And Peter, uh, given your own uh, expertise, a question from somebody who's HIV positive, 35 years old, uh, and got a new liver just before uh, the pandemic started, uh, what should he be thinking or he or she be thinking? Um, and, um, and should he uh, or she uh, go back to, to work in the clinic? No, those are great questions. They're very pertinent. So I think for um, new transplant patients now, we're actually within the first three months or so, or even early on, uh, trying to, if they hadn't gotten immunized before, we are offering them long-acting monoclonal antibodies, Evusheld, uh, because we're not convinced, say you're coming in unvaccinated, unexposed, you're being hit hard, uh, you're probably not going to develop uh, uh, antibody response for several months, but now we have long-acting monoclonals like Evusheld, although we have to increase the dose with Omicron. Uh, we can give it to you temporarily and then give you the vaccine series after. Now, if you're coming in to transplant, you got the transplant a while ago, the question is, do you have you responded to the vaccine or not? And by the studies, 50% of people um, in certain high immune suppression groups haven't. So rituximab, transplant, uh, allo-BMTs, et cetera. And those people, anecdotally, even though no national guidance, a lot of people are checking. Well, first of all, you, get, you, go, you go up to date on your vaccines. Um, and if you, but you're also eligible for Evusheld, but the question is, do you go up for the Evusheld or not? And, you know, and this is where the, the art comes in. So a lot of people in practice are checking, uh, you know, uh, spike protein antibodies and, and seeing what that is. So it's, it can help guide whether or not you would get a long acting monoclonal antibody. So say somebody like Colin Powell, for example, he has multiple myeloma, plasma cells completely shut down, never making any, any antibodies. So he can get like a zillion shots and he probably wouldn't respond. In that case, he would really benefit from something like uh, monoclonal antibody. So it all depends on the situation. It's very nuanced, but I think the multiple shots increases the probability of you getting a response as an average transplant person. And uh, we know that in hepatitis B shots in transplant patients and in HIV, sometimes you don't respond with the regular three. So in practice, we give you one and check your antibodies, another one. So that it's, and there's literature to support this that some people need four or five shots. Yeah, and just so I used to run a congenital hypogammaglobulinemia clinic when I was a fellow. And um, we, you know, those poor children, it was, it's a pretty rare, uh, 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 immunodeficiency, but those children essentially had no B cells, um, and, uh, or non-functional and really we had to, you know, they were sustained yep, on yep. regular antibody. So there, I think the downside is, you know, not a big one. And I think if you want to monitor with antibodies, 
um, I think that's reasonable. I wanted to point out one really quick thing. There was there were studies now looking at uh, antibody levels, neutralizing as well as non-neutralizing antibody levels and severity of disease. And it's true, you do get big spikes, but they come down fast too. So you have to be really careful with interpreting antibody data because it so, doesn't really mean protection. It may not. This is, uh, Bonnie, that's an, an area I wanted us to, uh, to wander about in, uh, in a second. So um, we've heard some discussion, um, I wouldn't exactly say controversy, but some discussion about antibodies versus cellular immune, immunity. Um, which is more important? Which can you measure? Or kind of, can you can you absolutely say forget about antibodies and rely on cellular immunity? Um, uh, we've heard that perspective. Others, you know, that that pretty religiously follow the antibody levels. Um, uh, thoughts on that and where we should be, uh, where we should be going. Well, so you know, I've studied T and B cell immunity in children, so it's a little different, but it's a little it's easier in some ways because if you have these congenital defects where you block one line or another, it's easier to look at the extremes. So it depends on the virus. So if for measles, for example, T cell immunity is absolutely critical. If you have no T cells, you will die from measles disease, even if you have a full if you have F B cells. Uh, for polio, uh, B cells seem to be enough. Um, it's clear right now that B cell immunity is very good at preventing infection for SARS-CoV-2. The question is, what does T cell immunity do? And I don't think we really have a good handle on that yet. I mean, everyone's done, there's lots of studies and we do know that they play a role, but the, it's not going to be quite so straightforward as say measles um, or polio on the other hand. And so I think we're just going to have to see, but, but I, I do think there's, I, I don't know what Mike and um, Peter think, but I think it's a combination. Neutralizing antibodies critical, um, and T cells are probably important too. But there's so many different kinds of T cell responses. Um, we don't know which ones to measure. I would oh, I wouldn't go down that path. Thanks. So one of the things I love about these is I get to look at the <clears throat> at the <clears throat> at the questions and look for friends, and I see a couple already. So uh, one of my friends who happens to be over 80, Merv Silverman. Um, who is a hero from the HIV epidemic, asks uh, for those uh, people that are over 80, uh, thinking about the next booster, why not wait a little bit longer and see what happens with this uh, possible surge? Um, if, it, if it looks like it's, it's really happening, then get a booster versus doing it now. We've already talked about that a little bit, but uh, Mike, do you want to comment from Merv? Sure, I'm Merv. Um... I would say that to me, the intensity with which we should look to get that fourth shot is like a grayscale. And as we get over the age of 60 or 70, I think it starts to turn darker gray. So I would encourage, we don't know what it's going to do. And we're really not trying to prevent infection. We're trying to prevent badness. We're trying to prevent people from going in the ICU. So I'd go ahead and get that shot now, Merv, unless, unless if you had encountered Omicron in January, let's say, you could probably count that as a quasi booster and put it off to May or June or something like that. But I don't want to see you or anybody else get real sick with this. And that's what I think we're talking about here, uh, moving on into the future. So a question that came up in my email today, um, and I see it um, two people on the on the on the 
uh, Q&A, including Bill Owen, who is another hero of the HIV epidemic, um, people are saying, okay, now we have, um, right now we already have Pfizer and Moderna. Um, uh, people have already gotten perhaps um, a J&J vaccine. What's the current thinking about kind of mixing and matching versus hanging in there? Uh, now that I've gotten, and I'll just raise my hand, uh, three doses of the Moderna, um, is it better to stick with that? Do I stay you know, true to my school or do I uh, uh, switch off and, uh, and try to broaden my, uh, my immunity a little bit? Uh, any, any of you can comment on that, I'm sure. Well, well, there was a study out of NIH back in October-ish that showed that there was some value to switching and just that plus instinctively giving the immune system another look at a little bit of a different uh, variant of sorts, this time a vaccine variant, if you will, I think makes sense. So if you've gotten three doses of Pfizer, you're going to get a fourth, get the Moderna. It's important to remember that that booster of Moderna ought to be the 550 microgram, not the full, what we used to use in the original series of 100 micrograms. So make sure you're getting that and vice versa. If you've gotten Moderna along, switch to Pfizer. I was curious what Peter and uh, Ivani said. Yeah, absolutely. That NIH study, you know, I, I would love to see an update of that that was presented at the at one of the VRPAC meetings in October. And it was about 50, no, it was, it was about 50 people, right, Peter? I think it was, it wasn't a lot of people, but it definitely showed that mixing and matching is, is great. And it almost didn't matter. I think Moderna came out doing better, but, um, it, you know, they were at this point, I think, you know, whatever you do, you know, getting a, do, more uh, repertoire, uh, uh, antigenic exposure uh, repertoire is probably a good idea. So, so I'm hearing maybe it is good to think about uh, broadening uh, uh, as you enter your your, your next booster uh, shot. Peter, any thoughts? Yeah, I agree with everything that people said. I'd only say uh, that the current preferred var vaccines right now um, are the mRNA vaccines and not J&J, not because it's not effective, but rather because, you know, just the smaller... Uh, uh, risk of, of clots in some people. That's why they prefer the mRNA. Uh, but there are also, interestingly, going to be two other vaccines in the pipeline if people want to really mix and match, like uh, a, a, a chocolate uh, variety box. Um, the Novavax, which I really like just because it's similar to um, the traditional vaccines, like a subroutine uh, vaccine and, and the, the GSK Sanofi vaccine which actually looks to perform really well. Um, so a lot of things still happening. Um, and th the reason why those vaccines are important is because some people uh, really, uh, had, there are really few people who had like terrible, uh, not serious side effects, but like the ones that they couldn't uh, take anymore. And some people even got rash. They wanted to sometimes, some of them wanted to just wait for another vaccine type. So I, that's why I mentioned that. So another another question uh, from the from the group um, has to do with the efforts that are underway now to create a specific uh, Omicron uh, vaccines. Is that something that people should uh, should watch for? Is that something that we should be trying to to get, or are, are the, is the current approach uh, uh, adequate? Um, anybody? Yeah, so those vaccines are in trials now. So there is a Delta Omicron. Uh, variant that's being uh, looked at, at least two. 
there have been a number of uh, oral vaccines, nasal vaccines. The orals have not done so well, mostly not sure why we haven't seen the data, but they didn't really do well. I think it's one was in Israel and I forget the other one was in India, I think, but um, uh, yeah, so I, I think we should watch them, but I think we should still make sure people just get the vaccine that they have right now. And I do think, you know, somebody mentioned what's the next stage or should we be calling these boosters? I think semantics are important for the public for sure. Um, and I do think we're headed into a, a term where we're a period where we're not going to call these boosters anymore. We may wind up with, uh, you know, if you think about the 1918 flu, for example, these the flu that we see now, the H1N1 that we see now is a direct descendant of that flu. So uh, this virus may be around for a long time and hopefully it'll just turn into a cold virus that doesn't kill uh, 1% of the population. Yeah, but, uh, it's not gonna, yeah it won't happen. I don't think it's going to happen in yeah. the next year. Maybe one day we'll have a uh, sorority or fraternity vaccine that's called uh, Omicron Delta Gamma. Or something like that. <laughs> I think it, it. We could already do it, Mike. Don't you think? Um, so, um, uh, one of the things that I heard earlier is uh, from one of you uh, is some of this, uh, some of the language that we hear, the communications, and I think we've all, in watching this whole pandemic, been struck by sometimes the bizarre communications that happen, um, and so the. And, and Bonnie, maybe I'll toss this to you to start with, but um, guidance from the CDC now seems to be um, less should and more could or you might versus you must. Um, talk a little bit about the, about the state of the art of communications in this, in this whole field, because I think people uh, maybe are understandably getting confused. Yeah, I, I think, you know, so this is the great audience for that, because I think that the public still trusts scientists and to a certain extent and, and healthcare providers and the way we communicate to the public is critical. And I think we need to be uh, very careful about what we say. I, I do think that CDC and FDA and other agencies have, um, you know, it's hard to, I think one of the things we have to learn is how to build a scientific platform for communicating to the public. We haven't done a very good job of that. Um, I think Operation Warp Speed to a certain extent did a very good job of their message, but they had a very focused message. They had one thing to do essentially. Um, and they used the DOD uh, piece of that to build out, you know, okay, tell me, give me your list of things you need to deliver and I'll deliver them. I literally had a giant pallet drop shipped in the parking lot of our football field uh, in March of 2020. And I had no idea what it was for. I figured it out eventually. But the point is they're great at delivering stuff, um, but we need more nuance about who delivers what message. And that's, I think, really critical for our administration, our federal agencies to be able to, us to point to, you're the expert in this area and you're the expert here. And how do we do that? And to be fair, we've never had, well, we haven't in our lifetime had a pandemic like this, we, but we didn't do such a great job in 2009 either with that pandemic flu either. So I think we need to learn a lesson. Uh, other thoughts, uh, Mike or Peter? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we gotta give everybody a break here. I mean, this thing's been with us two years. That's it, two years. And we're learning as we go. And thank goodness we've got these miracles around us, treatments, vaccines, 
holy smokes, going back to the early days of HIV, we didn't even know it was caused by a virus two years into the epidemic. So processing that information, having a mind of a scientist who doesn't like talking in absolutes, at least until there are absolute data. And we have to, the public doesn't get into the nuances of, of well, there's a probability or whatever. So what I've resorted to is likening all this to the weather and saying that these waves are going to be like storms hitting us periodically. And now we're in a place where we can put our umbrellas down and be okay. When the next storm comes, um, we, we really need to get into our safe place and use our mask again and doing all those things, getting prepared now with vaccines and being prepared with medicine, medicines, rapid tests, getting treatment quickly uh, if we do convert to positive and manage the epidemic rather than letting, us man letting it manage us. So um, a question that I, that I see on the, on the Q&A that, that, I, that I love is sort of, let's back up and ask whether vaccines actually prevent infection. Uh, to what degree, how successful are, are these? Do we have all of that data in hand um, versus uh, obviously preventing a serious, a serious disease? And, the, and the, the question says, you know, for example, sports teams where people have been vaccinated and yet, you know, a whole bunch of them get infected at the same time. Anyone want to comment on, on that data? I don't think we have really great data to, to show us how, what the reduction in infection is. I do think that we do have uh, some evidence of decreased infectivity, um, but you know, this is now, you know, we're not at the point where we were in January through March of 2020, where everyone was susceptible. Now we have, so it's like flu, right? So how, why don't we know how serologic data translates into protection for flu? Because there's so much, there's so much variability in what, what we're protected against, depending on when you were born, what strains you were uh, exposed to. So I think it's not going to be easy to determine that with certainty, but I, I would say that there's good data looking at viral load. I'm sorry, Mike, you're the viral load expert here, but um, I think we've seen enough data that we, we do think that the vaccines do reduce uh, infectivity for sure, um, at least in the laboratory um, and probably in some human studies. I don't know that we can calculate the real relative risk reduction of infection with the vaccine, but it clearly, as you pointed out, um, uh, Paul, uh, we don't want to stop every sniffle or every cough. We want to keep people out of the hospital, and it's, they certainly work in that respect. So whether it translates out into less infectivity, um, less transmission, or just less symptomatic disease, I think we're probably getting a degree of all of those. We just can't prove it all yet. Great. Other other thoughts, Peter? Um, yeah, I agree with Bonnie. I think um, one point that Bonnie had brought up before in our pre-discussion, which I loved, was that <clears throat> as the population becomes more immune, you get a mixture of people who are called unvaccinated, but they've actually been exposed. So when you compare the control to the intervention, the control is actually looking immunologically more similar to the intervention minus the vaccine, the more you're, you progress in the pandemic. So the vaccine, and I think, Bonnie, that it might be interesting for you to comment on the kid vaccines and how the control group may or may not be different from the exposed group anymore. Um, the vaccines will look more and more similar in infection to the control group versus serious disease hospitalization. That 
I guess no one will dispute that the vaccines have been really uh, powerful in that regard. Right, right, right. So um, uh, the, in the Q&A, uh, question is um, kind of going, uh, going back to Mike, um, sort of, again, back to the communication. Um, the question is, White House announced booster policy before the FDA approved it. Um, and then we find out next week from the committees what, what they think. Um, uh, again, going to this uh, this idea of communication, and uh, are there uh, are there? Uh, and, and I know you answered this already, or you addressed it already. But um, but where should we be uh, uh, turning? And if, if we try to think of what have we learned, and, and how might we uh, do a better job of communicating uh, this? Uh, thoughts of thoughts about that? Well, yeah, I, I think I, again, I have sympathy for what the feds are going through with this. It's tough. It's very hard. I think what they tried to do with the approval of the fourth dose was basically saying, what's the harm versus what's the potential benefit? And if we feel like there's an emerging explosion of Omicron BA2 on our doorstep, we don't want to get so bogged down in process that we miss our window. So I think that's what pushed it along. And they're probably right that it's probably safe and that the effectiveness could well be there, especially for the older folks like me and um, some of us on the call today. And, <laughs> and, and that it, it does make some sense. But on the other hand, process matters, especially when you have controversial things. So I think maybe a lesson learned here was, yeah, yeah, we should have just had the group meet and not uh, created the impression like we're railroading this, but at the end of the day, they'll meet. I think they'll have the same conclusion, but it takes a couple of hits in terms of credibility. Great. And it was nice to see your dog behind you there, Mike. It's always it's always a great thing. I, I couldn't tell if it was a cat or a dog at first, but uh, we we've gotten to watch each other's animals over the over the time with this. Bonnie, uh, just a you know something that's totally non-controversial. Uh, maybe you want to. Uh, address a little bit is what do we know about pediatric vaccination? Mm. Oh yeah, and, not controversial at all. That's why <laughs> that's why most of the kids right. in the U.S. aren't vaccinated, right? What's the <laughs> what's the what's the single quick so bottom line? Right. The bottom line is it is better for children to be vaccinated than to not be vaccinated, and honestly, that is the message that we're hearing from the Kaiser Family Foundation from others that are doing surveys, families, it's not that they're afraid of the vaccine anymore. At first they were afraid. Now, I think people just think, well, the kids are just gonna get a cold. Why do I need to get them vaccinated? Um, that is absolutely not the way we run pediatric immunization schedules. We in this country now prevent 35,000 deaths a year from vaccine preventable diseases using the vaccines we have now. Now, now 35,000 deaths pales in comparison to what we're seeing with COVID, but if you can prevent a death in a child, why wouldn't you do it? So I think that's the message. It's a safe fact. These are safe vaccines, 11 billion plus doses in the world, uh, you know, 20 million doses in kids in this country now of these mRNA vaccines. So that's the simple message. And again, speaking about communication, I don't know how else we can get that message out. It's very difficult. Um, and then of course, there's a lot of fear about, uh, but so you have both ends of the spectrum because we also get people who absolutely say, I'm going to give vaccines to kids under five, even if they're not approved yet, because I, you know, we want those vaccines. So 
for, you know, we can't do that either if they're not approved, but we hopefully will get there soon. So yeah, it's, it's a spectrum, like you, you said, but I, but, but obviously safe, obviously effective. It's really just a matter of risk perception, which is what we've been saying. At, I think every one of these uh, town halls. Right. And I want to get to treatment in a second, but uh, Bonnie, there are a couple of things that have come up in the, in the Q&A that, that um, trigger that. Uh, myocarditis, um, you know, which we, I think, know is more of a risk in young, uh, young people. Another person mentioned possible uh, Guillain-Barre uh, as a vaccine. Uh, where are we in terms of safety of vaccines for younger people? Yeah, so the uh, the data on myocarditis has showed a couple things. The first, briefly, and I'm not a cardiologist, obviously, but um, but first of all, our cardiology colleagues, especially pediatric cardiologists, say that first of all, basic uh, my viral or other non-infectious myocarditis is very severe. It can be very severe. Uh, COVID disease myocarditis induced myocarditis can be very severe. Vaccine-induced myocarditis is on the order of about six dozen cases per million uh, boys between 16 and 29 who are met boys and men who are vaccinated. So the risk is about one in 14,000, um, and it's a very it's very mild. It lasts. It can pop up within a week after vaccination. Many of these kids are uh, have chest pain or shortness of breath, but they resolve very rapidly, and the long-term follow-up has been great. In the adult data uh, from MMWR uh, about a month ago, there have been 36 cases reported among about half, about a third of a, uh, a third of a million cases that are so really, really rare. So yeah. pretty rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the that's the major <clears throat> risk. I think there right. are other things, but they're not. GBS has not been has not had a big signal, and, and Nikki Klein at you know Northern California Kaiser has shown that that as well. Great, Peter. Um, I, uh, you know, so where we might be going might be um, like Tamiflu um, for for influenza. Do you want to talk about um, treatment, especially, I, I guess, especially Paxlovid, uh, how that's fitting into our, our thinking as we maybe enter the next phase of this pandemic? And what should people be thinking in terms of both their patients and maybe even themselves? Yeah, so great question. I think we're moving um, like much of drug development from the hospital into the community, try to get people earlier. And I think uh, right now Paxlovid is the golden child of, of uh, COVID therapeutics because it's generally safe with, uh, you know, you have to watch for drug interactions, um, but extremely effective if you are at the right risk category. So the bigger the benefit, obviously, the more you're susceptible. So in the study of unvaccinated people who have medical comorbidities, 89% uh, uh, effectiveness in preventing hospitalization, with, if taken within three days, 88% within five days. Um, so really great. The problem is right now, initially not enough, but now more because people aren't, you know, getting COVID right now in a lull but people just don't know about it. They don't know how to access it, not only patients, but uh, providers as well. They, they, don't, they haven't used it, they don't feel comfortable. People haven't really talked about it. They gave this website yesterday from uh, the Biden administration, one-stop shopping on the COVID website. But again, you kind of have to be computer literate to figure it out. Um, 
doesn't work as well on your phone versus the website on their computer. So it's very clunky. So if, to get the test and treat, which was again modeled after HIV for Paxlovid being the model, you have to do a lot more uh, systems work, um, work with pharmacies, somebody still has to subscribe it in the absence of a national healthcare system and information system. You, you want to hope that your drugs are going to be somewhere that somebody can run the drug interactions with. And all of this has to be done within three days after you get the diagnosis, prescription, get the treatment, take it. But if you do all those, that choreography, you can have a big bang for the buck. So that's the treatment. For the prevention, I think a lot of people are studying now, well, not a lot, but they're studying now using it for post-exposure prophylaxis and high-risk exposures like households, et cetera. I predict that that will be positive. Um, and you're right, Paul, it will eventually be like a, a Tamiflu situation. Um, the next, the molopiravir, only 30%, that's a Merck drug, uh, but it's still 30% is better than nothing. So if you still had a choice, you'd probably still want to have access to that if there's short supply of the other. And alternatives are remdesivir for three days, but you need an IV. And monoclonal antibodies are dropping off in efficacy, particularly with BA2. So we, the only drug that was previously left was sotrovimab, um, which was made by Vir just in the Bay Area. Um, but that's, you know, put, got, put the kibosh on with BA2. And then the only drug now for monoclonal antibodies for treatment is, uh, I can't even pronounce it properly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Made by Lily, because Lily yeah. had the... Bam Bam, we used to call it Bam Bam, <laughs> um, wasn't as effective with even with Omicron. So then they made an improved product. So that's the one that we have. But, you know, Paxlovid is, is as good as that, easier to take, easier to, to scale up. But test and treat sounds great, but the devil is always in the details. And I think you were telling us the other day that there was a case recently of somebody who clearly had just been diagnosed, uh, talked to her doctor and the doctor said, no, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and I've, yeah, I've heard those stories over and over and over again. I, I've had so many emails, calls from patients who said that their providers didn't know or didn't know how to get it or didn't think they would benefit from it necessarily because it seems like you just have a cold. But the point is in the right person, that cold, as we know, could turn into something else and you just don't know. So, you know, I just wanted to make a comment about this. You mentioned Tamiflu a few times, and I get nervous about that because we do a lot of guidance for the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I have a lot of physicians who don't think we should be giving Tamiflu for flu, um, and uh, also, sorry, Aseltamivir for flu. Um, Even though the vaccine this year proves to be not effective yeah, at and, all, and, right? <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, but they keep saying, well, where's the RCTs, and we need, you know, all of this data, and yeah, the benefit is, you know, the, first of all, the risk is incredible. There's no, you know, it's a very benign drug as well. Paxlovid has a, some drug drug interactions, but I'm talking about oseltamivir for now, but even getting people to uh -huh. want to do something like that um, for flu has been very difficult. I can't imagine. You know, I, I don't want us to lapse into this sense of it's normal to be COVID positive and not do anything. We, we, we're not quite there yet. I don't think we may be, but we don't know that yet. And I, and I worry, and I think want to reinforce what Peter said about the devils being in the details. Mike, what are you seeing with treatment uh, uh, in, in Birmingham or yeah. uh, thoughts on this? Yeah, it's picked up 
pretty well. I mean, remarkably, I've been very happy with, for the most part, with the uptake of antivirals. Maybe it's because we've been in people's face a lot on TV and whatnot, but I think it's critical to go back to the basics here. Remember that the first part of this infection is a viremic phase and it peaks out about three to four days. If we can get treatment to people on day one or two, after onset of symptoms, we can nip this in the bud. Waiting till day six, seven, or eight is almost too late. And for me, just kind of relating this again personally, I wasn't all that day one. I didn't waited to get seeing my connection here yeah i think we may have lost him but uh, uh, am i, I still was, on I, no you're on i think it was mike i think what he was trying to say is that oh sorry mike can you talk now I, we, we lost you there maybe cut yeah. your video uh, it's a viral disease with a cold go and give it now and yeah, don't wait yeah. yep agree so um, I'm, I'm wondering, I, I saw something in the chat. Um, remember we asked people at the start of this um, what they were thinking about doing. Uh, if I don't know if our technology or internet connections are starting to fail us, but um, I wonder if, um, uh, if it's possible to toss up uh, those questions again. We don't care if you change in your age uh, since the start <laughs> of the program. Uh, but I think in terms of your inclination to uh, to get the next dose, have we uh, changed any minds here or are we still about as divided as we were to begin with? So here we are again. So here are the audience survey. Do you plan to get a fourth dose? Um, when? Um, why don't we? And then pediatrics. Let's let, I think that would be an important one to ask again. So uh, if people can can answer that really quickly. And if I can see the results, I'll try to remember uh, what we had at the start of the program. We only have a few minutes uh, left. Uh, I would say just in anticipation of closing the program that it's been, uh, it's been a great discussion um, as always. Um, uh, and uh, certainly uh, a lot of questions still remain. It's been, it's been great seeing all the participation from the, from the audience. Sorry if I didn't mention all of my friends that I see on the on the list, but uh, uh, but we appreciate uh, you all being here. So um, so here it is again. So this is the new response. So it looks to me, I'm just, I'm not going to try to quote numbers, but it looks to me like uh, we've definitely seen a swing in terms of people that plan to get um, the fourth dose. I'll, I'll raise my hand for that as well. Um, and in terms of when uh, people are thinking about getting it. I'm eyeballing that to say, yeah, still about as divided as it was. Um, and I, th I think some of the discussion that we heard was, you know, uh, and this was kind of going back to Mer Silverman's question, maybe as we watch the next wave come, maybe we want to wait a little bit um, versus, uh, versus jumping on it uh, so that we're ready when it does come, if it, if it does come. And then Bonnie for the pediatrics, I'm not, I don't remember the data from the start, but. Yeah, um, unfortunately, the way the question was, you could only answer one. And okay, it was yeah. so, But, you know, I, I, I think it was helpful that people did pick five to 12 year olds as the most important group right now, given that that's the 
group with the lowest rate of vaccine, 67, 70% of uh, 12 and older are vaccinated and only about uh, 25% of six, five to 12 year olds are. So that is the, that is the group that needs to be vaccinated now the right. most. Yeah. So. Well, uh, guys, uh, thanks so much. We've, we've covered, I think, uh, quite a bit of ground in our, in our dialogue today. Um, and uh, thank the, uh, mostly thank the people for uh, being on the panel and for the people in the audience for, uh, for uh, giving us your, your questions and feedback. It's been great. Sorry if I didn't get to everything, but also thanks to the staff at ISUSA uh, who, as usual, have done a spectacular job of putting this uh, this all together. And stay tuned for the upcoming um, uh, programs that the organization has. So thanks again. Thank you all. I think we have everybody leaving now, so I can just say a quick thank you to the three of you. What a great, we saw Peter left. What a great dialogue once again. Mike, thanks for pitching in. Yep. Okay, so, bye everybody. My internet service provider. Okay. Okay. Have a good weekend. Thank have you. Have a good weekend, everybody. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.